If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. I think uh, Black and brown communities are now looking to reform some of our food systems to make sure that it shifts away from white Christian saviorism culture, where you eat what you get and you smile and you say thank you, versus now we're shifting to a place where we're like, no, we're not eating that trash. <laughs> Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. This is part two with Joseph Seiya on Pacific Islanders. To hear the introduction to this topic and the full guest intro, please listen to the previous episode. Joseph Seiya is the co-executive director of the National Association of Pacifica Organizations and the founder of PICAWA, a social service organization for Pacific Islanders. In part two, we dig deeper into several topics. We discuss the decades of erasure and policy leading to health disparities like the high rate of police killings and homelessness, his focus on organizing and gaining power to make change in governmental policy, the programs that PICA offers, such as Cultural Weavers Program and the Youth Finders Program that offers intergenerational space that helps youth thrive, Joseph's identity as Fafa Fine and what we can learn about gender identity from the Samoan culture, and the consequences of viewing someone as just a fat body that needs to lose weight and not acknowledging their humanity. Here's Joseph Seiya again. Okay. I started out by saying the theme is land displacement, colonialism, environmental racism, because I wanted to link back to the health of the Pacific Islander community. And some staggering stats that you highlight in the Picao website about Pacifica youth suffer from the highest rates of suspension and expulsions. The Pacific Islanders in the state of Washington are five times more likely to experience homelessness than their white peers. That's based on the one night count in 2020. Then there's the healthcare disparities because of COFA and then chronic low wages from being recruited to these factories in the state. So there's a lot of big systemic causes for poor health in Pacific Islander community. Not sure what you would like to highlight about that because I actually want to then flip the perspective of talk about the work you're doing rather than just keep emphasizing all the harm that's been done for the communities here. Yeah, thanks, Raj. We're really talking about like decades of erasure and policy, especially in equity policy. And Pacific Islanders have not had a specific lane even to the governor to be able to advocate on behalf of their policy priorities. And so it's been hard because of the lumping with our Asian brothers and sisters, but also just 
our community is less than 1%, similar to the Native American, Alaska Native community. When you're less than 1%, often you're communicated that you don't matter because your population is too small. And so I think there's just historical underinvestment in our communities, underinvestment in the capacity of our communities to really build up the infrastructure that we need to build up to facilitate the work of rectifying a lot of the injustices that our communities are facing. Because of all of that, the decades of erasure we see now in, in multiple systems, the impacts that Pacific Islanders have had to face. And things like we have the highest killing rate with police departments. When you actually disaggregate Pacific Islander shooting, police involved killings. You see that Pacific Islanders have suffered at the intersection with the policing system, right? More so than all the other communities, if you look at the rates specifically for every other community as well. It's the five times more likely to be homeless. I've checked in with the King County Regional homeless authority with the work of Lamont Green with the Lift Experience Coalition. And they actually have some newer numbers as says we're nine times more likely to experience homelessness as they're disaggregating Pacific Islander data from everybody else. And this is replicated in a lot of different systems. We've started our organizing to turn the boat specifically in the K-12 system when we did that study about 10 years ago that looked at the gap, the achievement gap between Pacific Islanders compared to their white Asian peers. And saw the suspension rates, the expulsion rates, the dropout rates, the Pacific Islanders had absenteeism from school. At all those four things, we were faring the worst in. And after that initial study 10 years ago, we need to prioritize Pacific Islanders within the school systems. We need to figure out ways for parents to get more involved. And so for 10 years, we've been offering student conferences for Pacific Islander youth called Uprise. We've also increased the community's role in supporting our Pacific Islander high school clubs. And Pacific Island college students to be within the high school system so that there's pathways for students to go directly to college or at least consider college as the next step. Other than you graduate high school, you go work somewhere just so your family can pay bills, which is what normally what happens with our Pacific Islander youth. So we've seen some improvements in the educational field. Now we're trying to go into the other systems, the other places where our numbers are pretty dismal. And recently, PICA has been working with healthcare providers, with the Department of Health, with King County Public Health, and making sure that they are hearing us and we are at the table and that we're co-designing solutions that are actually made by people of lived experience. So a lot of our staff and a lot of our community members, we're trying to make sure that they're at all these tables that they weren't at previously. But not just that, because it's not just enough to be at all these tables, but how do we as a community work towards sovereignty and create our own tables and figure out ways for wealth to be redistributed to our own solution tables so that we're facilitating the work of improving our own health. And to also get a sense of power of how to organize and how to come together and really believe that their lives matter, that their grandparents' lives matter, their kids' lives matter. And it shouldn't be that you're going to the hospital to die. The rates of our mothers actually giving birth is pretty bad because of the setup that is right now. And then carrying that life all the way through to when they're aging, how do our aging elders receive the care that they deserve within these institutions? We've put up our cultural weavers program because one of the things that we found out from the pandemic is that Pacific Islander elders had nothing to look forward to. They were isolated at home. Sometimes they were often forced to just watch the kids. They were the by de facto babysitters for these families. And a lot of them were depressed and really didn't feel honored. Back home, it's the exact opposite. They are worshipped and treated with so much love and care. 
And there are people in our families that are specifically given a duty, a lifetime duty to care for them. And that was a very sacred role in Pacific communities. Over here, it's the exact opposite. And so at Pika, we've been building space for the elders to come, to be here twice a week, to be tended to culturally, to be tended to in their homes socially, so that they are less depressed and are able to access a network of care. And they're here, they're speaking their languages, they're singing in their languages, and it's such a beautiful thing to be able to offer up a space of dignity for our elders to access. Yeah, yeah. I love just finding ways to resist. I hear a lot of things that you're doing as just ways to find belonging again. I actually like the way you define belonging because I think when we think of belonging, we just think about ourselves and maybe our family. I want people to reflect on their own cultural identity when they listen to this. Because when you say belonging, I think it's also to kin, to culture, to place, to the nation, to the soil, creatures, the cosmos, ancestors, all of that, right? There's this belonging that's it's like so a part of Pacifica culture that's connected to all these aspects. I don't think we think of that. Yeah, that's it. Belonging. And, you know, once you have a very uh, deep understanding of belonging, you also then have a deep commitment to Indigenous solidarity, right? That Native people here have belonged here for thousands of years. And if you really understood the sense of belonging and not continue to live as if there was nothing here before us and we're just here to get a, a nice paying job just so our families can climb up economically, anybody can do that. But that's living a life where you just literally are not accounting for the history of a place. Until you're able to respect indigenous technology and indigenous wisdom and indigenous people in the ways that they have held on to thousand-year-old wisdom traditions of stewardship, we're going down doomsday. We are going down doomsday as a human race, as a planet, because we've adopted very violent ways of being on earth where we overly consume, where we are very transactional about the resources around us, and we do not allow for resources to have the time to be able to be restored and that and things just get used until you can no longer use it anymore. I think the opposite, you know, once we start to understand where our food comes from, once we to understand the personhood of the soil, the personhood of the waters, the personhood of the mountains, Native Hawaiians are not just wanting some old mountain back. They actually believe that Mauna Kea is a living being, right? And they're fighting for the dignity that is Mauna Kea, that is a sacred place that their ancestors have always considered a person. And you have to respect that place. Similarly to a lot of the Coast Salish people and the way that they respected their waterways, their mountains here, Mount Tahoma, and how Mount Tahoma is really a source of, of fresh water for this whole region. And I think understanding place is really having a deep commitment to the history of a place and also for you to be able to then teach that to others. So I have the same responsibility to steward for this place as a Coast Salish person has since I am on their land, right? So how do you take that on as well as somebody that is a guest here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I want listeners not to just think about oh, how do we understand this community so I can convince them to take a medication for diabetes. I want people to be more effective in advocating for the community, especially with the power they have, thinking about land stewardship. What does it mean to think about all these other ways of healing? How do we get systems to provide that for folks? I also wanted to highlight this other program that you have directly helping folks with the family wellness navigation. And delivering food to folks, especially in times of food insecurity. How do people get connected to that when they're in need? And how do you identify those folks? 
Yeah, so right now our clientele is in the 700s. We serve about 700 families that are facing food insecurity. We do it through food deliveries twice a month. We pack up boxes with culturally relevant food items, and we work in partnership with DoorDash to deliver within 10 miles of our location here in South King County. But we also have our own vehicles that we transport food to Snohomish, to Pierce, to Thurston, to Clark County. We believe that traditional food bags do not offer anything of value to a lot of our communities. And so we're like, here's this free resource that we can engage with. And we can work directly with the food distributors to make sure that they are listening to our communities. And if our communities have the highest food insecurities, why are they serving food for white families in the amounts that white families have for their households? If you know anything about Pacific Islander communities, you would know that we are intergenerational in our households and there's at least 10 plus in every household. And so how do you account for all of the peoples that are living there, the types of foods that we eat as a people and make sure that is what's actually going out there. And so. We've taken on that body of work. We've heard nothing but praises from our peoples as to how that food box has allowed them to save a week-long worth of cost for their families. And if you're thinking about it, if we're doing it twice a month, that's two weeks of us covering hundreds of dollars that now these families are able to save so that they can do something else with it. So it's hugely successful. I think we're one of the very few ethnic assigned food banks in the state of Washington because we are a designated food bank as a partner with the food distributors. And I know that the Latino community has their own system set up as well through my friend Roxana Garcia, who's doing tremendous work with Alimentando. Uh, which is a Latin-specific food bank. But I think uh, Black and brown communities are now looking to reform some of our food systems to make sure that it shifts away from white Christian saviorism culture, where it's you eat what you get (laughs) and you smile and you say thank you, versus now we're shifting to a place where we're like, no, we're not eating that trash for (laughs) second of all, how do we make sure that the tax dollars that are being used by these food distributors are actually ending up in Black and brown We need to make sure that our people know that these are all tax dollars. That is why these entities are stood up and that they have to actually do their job of closing food insecurity within all of our families. And then outside of that, our wellness navigation body of work, we have wellness navigators. They speak with Ryan, Chukis, Marshallese, Lani in West Papua. They speak Fijian, uh, Chamorro. So we have uh, wellness navigators that are bicultural, bilingual, that families are able to access and they enroll folks in COFA insurance. They connect folks. They go with our families to appointments because half of the battle is actually to have an advocate with you when you go into DSHS, have an advocate with you when you go into that court system. As when our families go by themselves, they fold. And when there's a wellness navigator or a youth navigator that is specifically there to advocate for them, they can stand a little bit tall in a lot of these spaces where they would naturally fold and are not able to advocate for themselves. It's a great thing that we have. We take everybody that comes in. We don't say, oh, if you qualify, then we work with you. If you walk into our doors, right then and there is the start of the relationship and our wellness navigators. And our youth navigators, they work with clients for about six months to a year, making sure that they are developing service plans that are very clear to the goals of that particular family and that our resources are being relegated to support our families navigating the system successfully. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think you mentioned the Pacific uh, Wayfinders. Is that the youth navigators? Yeah. I watched the videos that you did in COVID. Mm-hmm. I think there was a series of six videos. Yeah. 
they were really well done. I want to know the videographer. You look good on those two, I gotta say. But it looked good at the music and the audio. Everything was excellent. You know, the funny part is, Raj, is that the music was actually music that were developed by the Wayfinders. Like, they went into studios, they developed their own rap songs, their own reggae songs. And so a lot of the contents that was actually put out there was really made by our young people. And it was targeting our young people. Yeah, I'll connect you to the videographer. Yeah, they're pretty gifted. Our Wayfinders program was trying to create places where young people don't feel judged, where they can come and learn their culture and learn it from wherever they're at to create a space where they can just exist and be able to access support, whatever that is, outside of the school system. Our school system now are like, I don't know if you know this, Raj, but they're contributing to the school to prison pipeline where if there are issues that are happening in the school, a lot of the schools now are referring our young people to the prosecutor's office, as opposed to maybe when I was going to school, which is a long time ago. A lot of the restorative work was done within the schools, but a lot of the schools now are referring our young people out to the prosecutor's office. And once it gets there, like young people starts to get criminalized and you perpetuate this school to prison pipeline that we have been working for the last two decades to resist and to counteract. And so I think schools are not necessarily the safest place for kids to exist now. So we're hoping that in the creation of the Wayfinders program, that there are alternative spaces where young people can access that mirror them back in their culture and also mirror them back, seeing them as these people with capacities to change the world, as opposed to somebody with all these problems that we need to help them fix. So it's been an honor to offer up intergenerational space here at Pika. We have staff here in Sacramento County. We have staff in Vancouver and in Spokane. And we're hoping to continue to build up the infrastructure to continue to create these spaces, these cultural spaces of influence. And really people can access and feel like they're part of a big community that's holding them up. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay, a few more questions. I wanted to make sure we covered identity, as I mentioned, because it's another self-reflection on our culture here in the Western culture. We view gender as binary, either or. I think it goes back to, uh, I think you said about the perspective of holding multiple ideas at the same time. I think specifically in Samoa culture, there's a third and fourth gender. And I think you identify as a fafafine, right? Yeah. Can you just tell us more about that? Yeah, in the, in the Samoan community, we have self-affiliated Vatam, which are two additional genders that is actually recognized by our community culturally and also politically. When there was a lot of a big backlash about 10 years ago that was coming out of Fiji, I think our prime minister at the time released a letter internationally that says that Samoa will continue to honor its indigenous identities that is Fafine, Tane. Um, that is afforded to us from our ancestors and um, we continue to honor them as a community at large and I, I think because of our indigenous culture that continues to inform who we are we're able to offer up some of that wisdom to support other communities and either retrieving their own identities back that has been lost to colonialism or at least create spaces for them now and so you see Fafafines are like at the fore of the movement around ensuring that Black and brown queer people have a space that is not just dominated by, by white queer a folk, that we actually are creating space for ourselves that is very culturally rooted, 
that is rooted within the, the family, within the clan, within the village, within the peoples. And there's also racism that as queer people of color, we have to deal with within the queer community and also with our family in the larger community. So different priorities happen for us. But yeah, I identify as Papa Fine. I'm on the bearded side of our Papa Fine identity. <laughs> so for Pacific peoples, it's merely the path, right? So we acknowledge it as the path between the male and the female. And that for Fafafini and also, we don't just arrive anywhere, we continue to be on a path. So it doesn't matter where you're at on a path, it doesn't exclude you from belonging to that identity. And I think that is something that we offer from the Pacific that might not necessarily be something that is offered within the larger LGBTQ community, which is why it's so many letters, because everybody's too busy trying to define every location. But for Pacific people, as we say, Wherever you're at, you belong. You don't need your own letter. You are Fafafine or Fatsadne. And that's it. And, and our communities will continue to offer that up. And for us, there's a cultural location that we belong in. And we know we're part of that cultural fabric, too. And we're not trying to run away from that cultural fabric. I also give a lot of credit to our Mahu brothers and sisters that have been fighting in Hawaii to really stand up the traditional understanding of Maha as it relates to Native Hawaiian culture and history. And so there's a very beautiful uh, movie, a short movie called Kapai Mahu that talks about the relevance of Mahu healers within Native Hawaiian culture as they were uh, traveling from the South Pacific, from Tahiti, from Samoa, and they brought that culture to Hawaii and uh, really established it within Native Hawaiian culture as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Okay, some harder questions. Let's see what you have. We know healthcare institutions have consistently let the Pacifica community down. But what does it mean for you for healthcare systems in the way they're set up right now to show up for the community? Yeah, they're designated community health clinics that are federally funded. And I will say that none of them have learned how to serve Pacific Islander communities very well. But we know from looking at Native Hawaiian healthcare system, the community health clinics that are set up for them, such as Native Project in Spokane and also the Seattle Health Indian Board, that they actually do exactly what they are set up to do, which is very beautiful because they get to determine what health looks like, what healthcare should look like, the hospitality that's offered within their healthcare system. And also not just thinking about hiring doctors and nurses and Western practitioners, but also pay our medicine peoples alongside to do the work of health within their healthcare system. So it's not this Western versus indigenous sort of dichotomy, but that our indigenous ways are also preserved alongside. Yeah, I actually had a story where there was a woman that had really bad diabetes and um, she had went to a doctor and the doctor was telling her, you need to take this medicine, you need to do this and that, otherwise you're going to die from diabetes. And she told the doctor that she was actually going to go back home and see a Samoan medicine person. So she went back home. She came back six months later. She was completely healed. And the doctor was like, what did you do? And she's like, I went and saw a medicine person in Tawlasia in Samoa, and they told me what to do and I got better. And then the doctor was like, what did they tell you? And they said that I had to basically walk up this mountain three times a week that I could only eat from uh, the fruits of the land. There are all these like prescriptions that they got from the medicine person. And as the doctor was hearing her talk about all of the prescriptions that she got from the Tawlasia, it was exactly the same thing that the doctor told her, but it was just told to her by a Samoan medicine person. That just goes to say that the message 
doesn't matter for Samoans or any other Pacific Islander. It's actually the messenger that matters. And for Western medicine, they need to get away from thinking that the message is enough. But for Indigenous people, it actually is not enough. Because everything for us is embodied. Healing is embodied. So what does it mean to have Pacific healers, specific people to be able to facilitate that body of health and that work with us? And we have a, a saying in our tradition, but the saying translates as the crown of thorn starfish has both poison and remedy. But it's this specific belief that the only people that can heal us is us. That the healing already uh, exists within our DNA within our own technologies, within our language, within our wisdom traditions, that all of the healing is embedded in there. We only need to look inwards for us to then understand like what the pathway is for us to heal. And that's the same with food, right? There was a huge study that was done in Hawaii where they did a study of Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders where they put them on indigenous foods. They can only eat foods that our ancestors ate. At the end of the study, they were basically cured from diabetes because of the return to indigenous foods that actually was more aligned with their bodies. We know from that study and all of the other ways that once we have reflective space to bring back practices that our ancestors had and to have the ability to integrate that back to our lives, to like shift away from the toxic stress of capitalism and to have a lifestyle that is really centered in meditation and centered in understanding your food sources and also understanding that relationships are important and to nurture those relationships in your life and really recreating the village, right? The village of health that we existed with for thousands of years. How do we bring that back here so that we have it here and we're able to shift to a healthier state as a community? Yeah. That's something we need to aspire to. No wonder you keep talking about the exit plan. Like, yeah, I want that. <laughs> I'm telling you, Raj, I'm trying to get away from this toxic stress. Uh, well, until we get to a place where the Pacific community is trained as clinicians or care for the community, you're going to show up to a clinician and they're going to be American. You're going to be me. I'm Indian. Anyone. Do you have a story of somebody in that context that's actually made you feel seen and cared for despite their identity? And what does that look like for you? I'm a bad person to ask, Raj, because... You're yeah. like, you don't go to the doctor. The last time I went to a doctor, I could already feel the hostility that he had. And all he could see was a fat body Pacific Islander person. Because his only prescription mm. to me was, you need to lose weight. And that was four years ago that I saw him. And I, I never went back. As much as I do talk about health and re-engaging our healthcare system, I have to do some work on my own to really think about how to engage with the provider. That, As a matter of fact, we have a one Pacific Islander doctor that works out of Skagit County. I actually call him for support. He's a good friend of mine. I call him and he'll sometimes prescribe stuff over the phone, but he talks to me with respect. And that is the only person that actually goes for medical advice. But I'm very privileged in that I have a relationship with the Pacific Islander doctor and other people's do not. You know, I say paying attention to the humanity of a people, like when extended families are coming to say goodbye to their loved one in the hospital, do not make it a hostile environment and do not do the white thing of only two people at a time. Like, how do you extend hospitality and also space for people to do their cultural protocol around grieving somebody that's transitioned? 
We have so many cultural protocol that we have to do that matters just as much as what doctors think matters. For us, it's dignity matters. Even when you transition, the dignity of the person and the dignity of a family that's surviving uh, all matters. And we don't give up on our families when they're dead. It's not that we think that they die and that's it. We actually are people that are very much committed to the next world, whatever that is. And that's in our indigenous practice and also in our Christian practice, that they're going to a different place. And so uh, protocol very much matters. And if you come to the islands, especially Samoa, you'll see that all of our relatives that have moved on are actually right in front of our homes, on the side of our homes. Like we continue to commune with them, even in their death, we commune with them. And it's a very peculiar thing that Islanders do that I don't think other communities do as much. I think the Latinos, they celebrate El Dia de los Muertos like once a year. We celebrate it every day. Pacific Islanders, all their shirts, they have their relatives that have passed on. They'll make shirts out of them. There's a lot of memorabilia within the community to honor those that have passed. But that's also sad, too, because for Pacific Islanders, at least, there's so many disparities in health that we're constantly going to funerals. It would be nice to not have a culture that's constantly accommodating for funerals at such fast rates. So how do we work to keep our people alive and living longer and healthier lives versus seeing them go to the grave too? Okay, anything, any other final advice? I want this to be a resource for all clinicians. A lot of Islanders do come off as comprehending English. The truth of the matter is we might comprehend English, but we're not comprehending culturally. And so it's very important that people either get a advocate in the room when they're working with their families, not just for linguistic matters, linguistic access, but also because you want to facilitate and make sure that you're understanding the needs of the families. And just because the family is shaking their head like this doesn't mean that they know exactly what they're consenting to. And just to interrogate it a little bit further, um, knowing where somebody's from, their, their island is very important. It's as easy as when they disclose that they're Pacific Islander, you ask them, what island are you from? And so familiarizing yourself with, yeah, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, we're not all native Hawaiians. I think Samoans are a little bit more popular than other islanders because of the athleticism of our people. There are other island groups that people don't care to ask, like, who they are. And I think it matters for Pacific Islanders for somebody to know where they come from and who they are. Thank you. Joseph, you know I got you. You can call me too. I can get you prescriptions. I hope you trust me. Okay, Raj, I'll be calling you with our alternative plan and also for description. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much for spending this time. I think it'll be really helpful to a lot of people to broaden their perspective of what it means to care for the Pacific Islander community or the Pacifica community until we reach this aspiration of giving sovereignty to the Pacifica people and giving them resources and a way to care for themselves. Yeah, thanks, Raj. appreciate the time. I appreciate you reaching out. Thanks for joining me, Raj Sundar, in this episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support this work, please share it with others and leave a review. As always, show notes can be found over at healthcareforhumans.org. And feel free to contact me for feedback or show ideas through the website or through email at healthcareforhumans at yahoo.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish. If you enjoy podcasts like this, 
you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.